Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. In this week's episode, we're sitting here with Stephen Bown, whose uh, new book that comes out on October 10th, 2023, um, is titled Dominion, the Railway and the Rise of Canada, all about the Canadian Transcontinental Railroad and how that uh, came to be. Um, so thank you so much for, for joining us today, Stephen. It's my pleasure. Uh, well, to help set the stage for audience a bit, uh, what was British Columbia like prior to the Transcontinental Railroad? Um, so say with California, our first population boom predates rail travel by quite a bit. Um, by the time that we're talking about the Transcontinental Railroad, you know, we've already had a gold rush. Um, we already have San Francisco, which is a growing city, Sacramento, things like that. Um, are there large cities in British Columbia before the railroad? And, and sort of what, what did the economy there look like? Yeah, I mean, that's a good good point to bring up is that um, Canada at that point in time had very, uh, very different uh, population centers and growth and economy and political development than the U.S. I mean, Canada was very sparsely populated. The country itself only came into existence in 1867. Um, just for perspective, that was the same year that, uh, that uh, the U.S. acquired Alaska from Russia as a little addendum to the already existing country that was, you know, spread across the entire continent. So anything west of the settled areas of the St. Lawrence area, you know, between Toronto and Montreal, far to the east, um, was very sparsely populated. The Hudson's Bay Company territories, which were, you know, but the, you know, the Hudson's Bay Company is the uh, venerable British fur monopoly that more or less controlled and owned all of the commerce in um, most of northern North America. In fact, it it controlled and owned, you know, the current uh, U.S. states of uh, Washington, Oregon, Northern California, Idaho, parts of Montana. I mean, that was they were essentially a government as well as a monopoly trading corporation. That they were kicked out of there in 1846, and um, they ended up moving up north and setting up a little outpost on Vancouver Island, north of where the border was declared to be. Um, but at British Columbia at that time, it was you know, several maybe several hundred fur traders and their indigenous wives and their families and a few canoe routes that were traveling back and forth. Um, that also held true for all of the, what's called the Canadian prairies now, which are really just the same geographical region as the U.S. prairies, except that, you know, an imaginary line was drawn on it, but no one had marked this line and no people lived there except for the indigenous people. And of course, you know, why would they really care about this imaginary line that, that some people drew on a map somewhere back in the east and no one had marked anywhere. So they were generally not consulted on anything. So the situation is hardly any population existed in this region, hardly any political demarcation of any boundaries or barriers. Um, the fur trade outpost of Fort Victoria, which is what the city of Victoria is now, was more or less the only real um, settlement or city of any kind. And virtually all of Victoria's commerce was with uh, San Francisco and other areas in, in California. Um, you know, at the California, you mentioned the California gold rush, and they had, that's when the populated, you, you know, California became popular with people from the east flooding up there. A lot of those same people had a decade after that flooded north into British Columbia, maybe 10,000 people. And they had inundated this small fur trade outpost of a few hundred people and they had rushed up the Fraser River on a different gold rush you know they were and this caused a lot of political tension in the area between um 
you know, who was going to govern it, who was, there, there were no laws, there were no regulations, there was no um, standards of, of behavior. And there was a lot of chaos and fears of vigilante justice and violence. And then, you know, of course, later there was a fear that, oh no, this is territory that, that Britain had claimed. And what if those dastardly Yankees were going to come in and declare themselves to be um, part of the United States, which is what had happened in other, you know, in old Oregon, they called it. Um, so there was a bit of political tension in the late uh, 1850s and the, in the early 1860s regarding that. Um, but there was also a core group of people who wanted to maintain themselves as an independent state, which is nearly impossible to do since at that time, um, you know, we're talking about a, maybe a thousand people of any of maximum a thousand people of any uh, British, direct British background. Um, there was maybe tens, tens of thousands of people who had flooded up from California and other areas in the United States. And, and some had returned home by then. It's hard to get an exact population uh, figure for the, for the region. Um, and that's it. It was not a, it was not a stable region. It was, a, it was in total chaos. And so when the, the, the political debate at the time was they had several options. They could just try to remain independent, which would be very nearly impossible since they didn't really even have a governing structure and they had no infrastructure. There was no roads. There was there was this one town and a bunch of shanty towns and villages and, and uh, general chaos in the interior. Or they could uh, join the United States. And that was a serious option and many people considered it. In fact, that was the lo logical option and probably would have been greater for their prosperity at least in that in that time period for the short period of uh, the late 19th century they would have probably been financially better off had they just continued their um, economic integration with the united states but there was a core group of people who said we're approached by an eastern government of in canada which was you know along the saint lawrence and they said no no you've got to join the british colonies we've got to maintain our british roots and we've got to um, you know, band together to create a country that'll stretch all the way from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And if you agree to join us in the East, uh, we promise that we're going to build a railway to connect you to the East. Because, you know, at that time, the only way for anyone in Victoria to get to, say, the capital city of the new country of Canada in the East was by uh, taking a steamship down to San Francisco, getting on the railroad there, riding to Chicago or 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 further east, and then taking a different train up into the the Canadian, you know, provincial regions there. So, uh, yeah, you can see how the pressure was pulling them in two different directions. But in the end, there was a lot, you know, this promise of this railroad and um, sort of induced a lot of people. They had a, you know, votes and elections, and and they agreed that they were going to go with this option. We're going to join. Um, Canada, as long as you provide us with a railway. And that set in motion the whole, um, you know, the, the somewhat insane, chaotic story of the manufacture of this railroad, which, of course, at the time was just a, a, pi a pipe dream. I mean, the, the sheer level of quantity of geography that they would have had to cross, and most of it all, all uninhabited, part of it's not even mapped yet, it's not explored. And, um, well, that that's what created all the drama of the story. It was how, how the hell are they going to? actually build this thing the terrain that it was built through was a lot more challenging a lot geogra more geographically challenging more difficult to cross than the uh terrain that the american railroads 
had recently built in 69, I believe it was first one around then. And, you know, because the, t the key thing is that the, the territory, the geography south of Lake Superior is more or less rolling and flat terrain. North of Lake Superior is an absolute disaster. It's all just, um, you know, with that rock that they call Canadian Shield, it's just rocks and bogs, nearly impossible to construct anything over and, and very hard rock for blasting. Um, yeah, that's what ended up the problem in the, in the mountains of the Canadian Rockies and the Selkirks and the Purcell Ranges and all those different mountain ranges as you progress, you know, further west from the prairies to the the coast are, uh, well, the nearly insurmountable obstacles that nearly drove the entire entity to uh, bankruptcy multiple times. Yeah, what's interesting within that to me is um, like these people, when they're deciding which route to take, are they going to um, continue their economic integration with the United States um, and eventually become politically aligned with the United States as well? Um, or, you know, agree to this Canadian plan, like they know this is such like a pipe dream of a plan, like it's like, it seems like at least they have some idea that this is going to be a very difficult um, uh, process. And yet they still decide to do it eventually. Was it just like a nationalism thing? Like, we've been a part of Britain, we want to continue to be a part of Britain. Um, what was uh, what was sort of the, the reasoning there? Hey. I think, I mean, that's definitely part of it for some of the people. However, like, you know, I was mentioning a lot of the people who lived there had recently come from the U.S. in the first place. And some of them voted in various elections over outspoken members of parties or affiliations that wanted to, to join with this new country of Canada. So there's no, it's not, it doesn't necessarily fall directly on what, political lines you would imagine because um well like i said the, the population wasn't all british that's for sure and yet that's what they ended up voting for in that you're right that they probably must have known it couldn't really have been that easy anyone who'd been in this terrain who'd gone up the fraser river and looked at the sheer size of these mountains and imagine how heck you could get a railroad through any anywhere like that the canyons and the gorges and the cliffs and and that's just the part they could see the other, you know, thousands of kilometers stretching to the east into a place in the world that most of, almost all of the people who lived there had never seen, had never, it was impossible for them to even conceive of how big an undertaking it would have been. So maybe that's what it was, is it was so daunting a task that no one actually uh, had an accurate conception of how difficult it would be to build it in the first place. And they just kind of figured, oh yeah, why not? We'll just... um we'll join this, we'll join this new country. They're going to build us a giant railroad. We're probably going to get, oh, that'll be really great for our prosperity. We'll do really well with the new railroad. You know, the Americans, what are they offering anyway? Even though most, most of them were technically Americans, they were saying, oh, that'll just be the status quo. We won't get a railway if we join the American. You know, I'm, I'm, you can never really have an exact answer on why that is, but the, those were some of the ideas being bantered throughout at the time. Sure. Um, and then looking at this from the American side, um, was there an attempt by the Americans to, you know, try to sweeten the pot at all? Say, you know, why don't you come with us instead of the new Canada? That way, you know, we have a clean shot from the from Oregon to Alaska. We can just go through British Columbia. Was was there really any significant attempts by the American government um, or any other players? Well, you know, the I mean, the whole idea. I mean, this gets into the whole co concept of manifest destiny, which is. Um, you know, the overriding uh, belief that the 
the continent should be controlled by, well, the United States, which of course, you know, was a republic had rebelled against Britain and had had this idea that no European power should be anywhere. We're going to control our own destiny and you people should get the hell out of here. Um, there was that idea that was, you know, beginning around the 1840s, I guess. And that's what ended up being the motivating force for the way that Oregon and Washington and Idaho and these areas had kicked the Hudson's Bay Company out. I mean, that was the, you know, that came after the, what was it? James Polk, I believe, 54-40-year fight. I mean, isn't that 1846, I believe? Yeah. Um, I think that when it came several decades later, even if British Columbia was thinking that they were going to vote into Canada, they assumed that either it would change its mind really quickly or that the entire, all of Western, what's now called Western Canada was eventually just going to go and become part of the U.S. anyway. And so they didn't really worry too much about it because it wasn't worth very much. Um, of course, at the time, Alaska wasn't worth very much either. You know, wasn't it a six million, seven million dollars that Russians sold it to? You know, they they had hunted all the sea otters to near extinction and they hadn't found any oil yet. So if you consider all this as sparsely populated land, it's not worth anything. Why do we care about that? And I imagine that they were thinking about that British Columbia, too. I mean, what what's there? Maybe a few bits of uh, some gold reserves or something of which there was no shortage of in the U.S. at the time anyway. And there's no population living there. And they probably imagined oh, it's all going to come to us anyway. And that that was like that on the prairies, too. There was a belief that um, all of that Western territory um that's now Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta was also just going to slide into the American orbit. Now, I should point out, at the time, the economy of the U.S. was thriving and vibrant. Um, when immigrants to eastern Canada arrived, like say they come up the St. Lawrence Seaway and they're getting off in Montreal or they're heading down, I mean, what they saw was a bunch of uh, a stagnant, stultified economy that was smothered and controlled by the government. And they didn't really want to be part of it. And most of those people who arrived in eastern Canada promptly fled to the U.S. anyway. It was just a launching pad for them to go somewhere where their opportunity was going to be much better. So there's there's a lot of different forces at play during that time. And it's just an inter really fascinating time period. And it's impossible to like summarize it so mm -hmm. uh, succinctly. But, the, you know, they see all these competing forces dragging people this way, dragging people that way. But my belief is that they... Just imagine that the whole thing was going to slide to them anyway, since, look, in the eastern part of the country, anyone who arriving was already leaving to the U.S. So, and the fear in Canada at the time, like just for the, when I say Canada, I mean like the St. Lawrence Canada, the eastern Canada that existed at that time. Um, they really did have a fear that if the U.S., if all these areas did eventually go to the U.S., and they imagined they imagined that it was going to as well. Like they imagined all that prairies where the Hudson's Bay Company was and there's not very many people living. I mean, they could see that uh, American prosperity was stretching out across the plains. Railroads were being built. Cities, towns, farms were all spreading out. Nothing was happening in the area that was later to become Canada. They had their own belief that all of that was going to join the U.S. too. And then they imagined that they were going to be surrounded and they could see that anyone arriving in their territory also promptly fled to the U.S. So they imagined... For them, it was an existential, uh, an existential fear that their own existence, their own entrenched power structures, would be um, 
will disrupt it by this and that they would crumble as an independent state and eventually have to join the U.S. anyway. Now, a lot of people wouldn't have cared because a lot of people were leaving and joining in the U.S. in the first place. But, you know, in any society, there's a hierarchy and there's people at the top and they have their entrenched self-interests and their control over businesses or or whoever you want to think of it. I mean, th those are the people who were really opposed to it because they would lose their exalted status, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. And um, yeah. You know, I think that's interesting way of looking at it. Those are some of the competing forces. Yeah, well, it's it's the nation state like of Canada that's like they have to contend with the fact that, you know, the United States built the first transcontinental railroad and now they have that Northwest Passage, a way to get from the East Coast to the West Coast, seven days, seven nights, that whole thing. Um, and something your book talks about is just like how big of an impact that had on the American economy, as you're saying here. You know, you get that prosperity boom. And now, yeah, now if you're Canada, you have to look around and say, well, with how big the economy is going for the United States, um, in large part because of that transcontinental railroad, um, now it looks like they might end up getting portions of, um, of what has eventually, um, in reality, become um, Canada. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about sort of that? You talked about in your book that there's this change in hat fashion that eventually, you know, leads to some uh, a greater need for a transcontinental railroad. Um, essentially, yeah, what are, what are the economic benefits we're looking for here um, regarding a transcontinental railroad? Yeah, I mean, interesting you mentioned the hat. I mean, for for many centuries, the beaver hat was the was the cat's meow of the you know, this, uh, the felt that they could make with beaver furs was just a fortune that could be made into coats and especially into hats that ended up being waterproof and very durable. And for hundreds of years, that was the thing that everyone, everyone wanted. I mean, that was, um, that drove the beavers to near extinction everywhere from, you know, New York state and those areas around the Great Lakes region and especially in the north and the west of Canada where it's all that sort of swampy, rocky terrain, which wasn't good for much else other than beaver terrain at the time. Um, the Hudson's Bay Company was pulling beavers out. The beavers were especially, uh, a lot of them grew down in Oregon area too, along the Columbia River systems through there. So that was the main uh, prosperity generating enterprise for a long period of time, but had gone into decline um, as fashion sometimes does. It had a really long run, but now everyone wanted silk hats. So beavers were out, silkworms from China were in, and that was causing a lot of economic disruption, um, even in Montreal, which but normally the center which had been serving the manufactured goods and the the rum and the clothing and everything that's being shipped out there. Um, so that was an economic hit to them. And so the idea of the railroad would be, you know, the, the simple version of it is if we could just get this railroad built. And of course, they had no idea it was going to take so long or cost that much or 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 any of the logistical challenges they would face. If we get this railroad built, then we can flood that area with settlers too, but we'll pass political rules and that'll create a captured market for our own moribund industries, which were stagnating and, and um, well, they just could not compete with the industry in the United States. So there was all these um, arguments over whether or not they should have free trade or whether they should have protectionism. And, you, you know, the industry that in their mind just could not, thrive or exist without a market of its own. And so part of the idea of the railroad was to create this market, build the railroad, send people out on the railroad, have them populate the area. They can be like peasant farmers growing out there. Um, 
take all their produce, ship it back on the railroad towards us and force them to pay higher protectionism rates for manufactured goods that our own industry will then expand to produce. So that was the business model in the Eastern mines was to sort of create an economic hinterland that could be exploited for the benefit of these same, you know, family compact, these group of people that own the economy in the old Canada's. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, it's very similar to, um, it sounds like like the Homestead Act in the United States, where you essentially gave land out to um, to settlers as long as they populated unpopulated places, or not unpopulated, but unpopulated by um, by that country's citizens. And um, and yeah, and the sort of the part part of that is like now you have this territory that is occupied by your people, um, and now they're farming, and now you have this new industry and all these other kind of outgrowths from there. So I, I, I hadn't heard of that with a railroad specific tie in there, but that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's the that's the business model of Canada as a how it how it actually came about. See, this idea that we have to create the market. So yeah, and that. And part of the idea, the economics of railroads was an idea that was developed first in the United States. And you just alluded to it, like the idea that you give public land that that has no not, no one living on it because the indigenous peoples had severely been severely reduced by disease uh, in the intervening decades before that, like tuberculosis, smallpox. I mean, up to 80 percent or more um, of these people had had just succumbed to disease and so the land was um a great part of it was actually empty and so when the government took over this land it kind of imagined okay well we've got this empty land we'll give the empty land to the railroad for free if they promise to meet certain milestones for railroad construction um and then the railroad can finance itself by convincing investors that once we build the railroad, we'll own all the land surrounding the railroad, and then we can sell the land as a profit to all the people who will be riding the railroad in. And then once they're in, we'll make even more money shipping out the produce that they start growing when they're there. And that, that was the American business model. And that had spurred massive quantities of thousands of kilometers of, or thousands of miles, sorry, of uh, of railroads were built all over the U.S. following this business model, and it was a very successful one. And that was the one that the Canadian government tried to replicate for itself too. And that's how they funded the Canadian Pacific Railroad was this same model, giving away the free land to the railroad that the railroad could then use as collateral to arrange financing, with the idea of selling it back afterwards. Um, and then your book talks about some tensions between um, the investors that you're talking about, the people that want to make sure that the the land that the Transcontinental Railroad for Canada um, covers is something that they can profit off of um, and eventually sell and, and all that good stuff. Um, so some tension between them um, and then the first prime minister of, of Canada, McDonald, um, over what the route should actually look like. Um, can you talk a little bit about the different route options? Because I was pretty surprised to find out that like some like one of the options, maybe the more um, obvious one, um, would have just included parts of the United States in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's um that's the geographical factor that I was mentioning earlier. It's that the the, um, the land north of Lake Superior is so hard to, to traverse in any way. It's not suitable really for railroads or roads or settlement or or anything. It's just extremely difficult land. Um, 
So no one wanted the expense of building them because they couldn't even imagine. This was before minerals were discovered, I should point out. Now some of that land is extremely valuable because, you know, there's nickel and there's silver mines and there's other other valuable things are up in there in that, you know, Canadian shield rock. But back then they thought, ah, oh, you can't farm this stuff. There's no, um, it's, there's no soil. It's not flat. No one can live there. The forests are kind of scraggly. I mean, we have you know, a thousand miles of this crap. Well, how are we going to afford to build a railway through it? Because it's normally the the railroad has to pay for itself, you know, and if, if so they, they didn't want to go through that land at all. And they, so they were always secretly planning, well, instead of doing that, we're going to, we'll start building the railway just once we get to the west part of Lake Superior and we'll build it across the prairies. And then We'll give the impression that we're going to start building this railway north of Lake Superior, but really what we're going to do is send a bunch of spur lines south and tie into the American pre-existing railway and not ever do the the north of Lake Superior part at all. And that this is what the the first Canadian uh, Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, wanted to avoid because in his mind, he was a visionary and this the whole country of Canada is, is just his imagination. He said, look how successful the Americans are. We need to have our own country that also goes to the Pacific. I mean, the, this whole idea of Canada is something that he just dreamed up himself and really fought for for his, decades of his career. And he, he was the one who just said, no, if there's going to be a railroad, it has to only go through the Canadian territory. Now, this was to cause enormous challenges and difficulties. It took two decades to build that thing. Um, and almost it almost drove the entire country of Canada out, out of existence. The, the debts and the financing problems that it would have had and all the banking system that was so leveraged into it when it was almost about to collapse. Um, it was him who, who forced that railroad to go north. The investors did not want to build that part of the railway. And in fact, they did not make a lot of money off of that stretch for ages, despite all the government subsidies and the land that was given to them. Eventually, it proved to be extremely valuable once they found those minerals. But yeah. Really what they wanted to do was secretly pretend to be doing it, but then send spur lines and connect into the U.S. rail system and just kind of ship everything south of Lake Superior. Now, if it wasn't for politics, that is the logical way that economic development should have proceeded in that region. This idea of building a railroad north of Lake Superior is really insane. There's no... I mean, that's why the story is so dramatic, is because... It makes absolutely no sense to have done it, right? Except for p politics and people's imaginations on what should and shouldn't be done. Yeah, which I mean, yeah. And if you go, if we go back to the motivations for Canada for building this thing in the beginnings, like it, it starts to make a little bit of of that political sense, right? Where it's like, well, now if you have a transcontinental railroad in quotes that like just connects in with the American system, now you have a direct railroad, you know that the West is relying on the Americans so that economic integration continues to happen. And now it also leads into your country. So does that sort of create economic integration between you and the United States now? And are you kind of fostering that that choke point you were talking about where the existence of Canada becomes um, questionable about whether or not they'll just integrate into the United States in general? That sound yeah, like the fear? I, I would say that that's absolutely the case. And you know, it's not my own idea to, to say that. I mean, historians have studied that for a long time. There's really not much of a doubt. If this railway had not built been built through the Canadian territory, all of Western Canada would just be, I don't know what configure, 
creation of states it would be, some that never got to see the light of day. They wouldn't be called Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia. Anyway, it would be called something different. I don't know where the boundaries would have been, but it wouldn't have been part of Canada. It would have been uh, U.S. The, you know, the like you just mentioned, the economic integration would have led to cultural integration and political integration um, of those regions. So, and that would have been, you know, that would make a lot, make a lot more geographic and economic sense for the continent to have gone that way. It's just the, the political sense because of John A. Macdonald's strangely stubborn dream of having this, this country um, is the only reason that it didn't actually go that way. Yeah. And that's interesting. And we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on it later, but it's interesting seeing that how, um, you know, the legacy of the Canadian transcontinental railroad eventually gets tied to all these nationalistic, like, or like, like, um, like symbols of the, na it's like one of the big symbols of the nation. You have the Gordon Lightfoot um, railroad trilogy songs <laughs> and all these other stuff that um, sort of connects Canada to the transcontinental railroad. And the United States, of course, had a lot of that as well. Um, I feel like today it's, it's a little less, you know, it's like, if we're going to talk about like the big engineering achievement in the United States, People will talk about the moon landing, things like that. Transcontinental Railroad isn't, um, it's not unheard of, but it's not as big of a symbol as it used to be. Um, but but it almost makes more sense for Canada, right? Even if it, it was the second, not the first and all these other things, because um, without the Transcontinental Railroad, it probably, Canada probably wouldn't exist in the way it does today, at least. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. So probably that's why, and it's always, I should point out, like, it's always, for, it's always from an Eastern Canada perspective that the railway is like a great dream mm -hmm. and that it was, its dream was to construct it and to build it. I mean, at the time there, as I was mentioning, there weren't any people other than indigenous people of any significant numbers living in anything that's called Western Canada at the time. I mean, even the U.S. was partially populated in those Northern states, but partially populated in a relative sense to the Canadian ones, we, we could probably, there might only been 500 people of any kind of European or Canadian descent, uh, descent and culture who were living in all of those regions at the time. And it would have gone up a few thousands trickling in here and there, but really it was not a heavily populated region. Uh, at the time I had mentioned the indigenous population, which at one time had numbered hundreds of thousands, had significantly reduced, sometimes up to 80%. So this was a, a primarily uh, depopulated land and it was going to, something was going to happen to it because it wasn't going to remain depopulated forever. The farmland was good, the soil. It's just, how was it going to be connected to the larger culture and the larger societies which were developing? Now, even in the US, that was mostly in the East, but, you know, with the railway it was all across the United States at that time. Canada was, was something was going to happen to it. And it was probably going to go into the United, orbit of the United States. And uh, well, the railway is the only reason it didn't. Yeah. Um, okay. So before we get into construction bits, you started mentioning it there a little bit, um, which was like, I want to touch on the sort of change in the indigenous relationship with Canada um, and with a lot of these settlers. Um, between sort of the, the planning stages, you know, they're, they're coming up with, with how to build the transcontinental railroad and that sort of thing. 
Um, and then, you know, when we were talking about these beaver outposts, um, you mentioned a lot of the settlers had um, indigenous wives, and it seems like um, though there was a, a, a small, a shrinking population here that it, it's more integrated. Is, does that sound right? And then eventually when we're talking about like large scale settlements, that's when we're seeing the full sort of disenfranchisement aspect of it. Yep, that's probably true. I mean, around this time in the late 1770s, there was the Canadian government signed a whole series of uh, treaties with indigenous peoples uh in the territory west of lake superiors and not oddly enough in british columbia which had a series of smaller treaties were signed by governor um douglas who was the head of the hudson's bay company who also became the british um appointed governor of the territory um they had their own little system where a lot of the land because of the extreme depopulation uh, the reserves there tended to be very small, whereas on the prairies, the, the treaty systems covered large, big sections of land that were sparsely populated. But the size of the reserves where the indigenous people had, originally it was tended that that land was going to be reserved for their exclusive use, but the rest of the land would be open to everyone. Now, uh, it's a bit of a sad story. It didn't materialize the way that the original signatories probably on either side imagined, certainly not the indigenous uh, peoples who took a real, a real beating for, well, they're, they're still taking a beating now because um, there was a series of rebellions um, and they were punished severely for that and not allowed off of these reserves um, in our country. Indigenous people were not allowed to vote until 18, uh, 1960, I should point out. So, um, you know, completely, how do you even, how do you even get your voice heard within a theoretically democratic system if you're not even allowed to, to vote or to have representatives within that system, right? So, um, you know, a lot of really bad, sort of morally, uh, morally dark things happened during that time there's a whole idea of the residential schools where the children were taken and um not always a hundred percent against their wishes of the parents you know the sometimes the parents knew that they had to do something but a lot of these schools were not ethically run um I don't know. That's not really having to do with the railway, but that it it stems from the railway because the treaties were signed uh, because they wanted to sort of clear the land for the railway so that there wouldn't be any uh, warfare or violence or disputes. But at the same time that those treaties were being signed to make way for the railway, we see a the complete destruction of the buffalo population or the you know you know the american bison and that happened in the u.s at the same time that it happened in canada maybe a few years earlier but um it was spurred on uh, you know ironically the railways in the u.s brought a lot of people out onto the prairies and that's when they began hunting buffalo on such a scale that it completely the, the population had been declined already but it just kind of drove it over a cliff because you know, thousands more people could participate in this, uh, these great buffalo hunts. Um, their hides were used for machine belts in the Industrial Revolution because they were, you know, very valuable. Buffalo robes were really popular. They're very useful clothing. So with the large population centers wanting the products from these buffalo, 
and um, and increased ability for people to hunt them. The uh, numbers of them, which used to be like tens of mil- hundred million of these things, um, they were basically wiped out near extinction by the eighteen early eighteen eighties, and um, that caused widespread starvation. Um, by weakening people with malnutrition, it allowed disease to take even a stronger hold. You know, the story is the same in the U.S. as it is in in Canada. Um, It happened so rapidly that especially in the Canadian territories where there there was no railroad yet completed at that time, how would you, how would a central government even attempt to alleviate those problems? They have no way of getting there. There's no road, there's no railway, there's no way of sending boats around into it. And when they did try and send some food relief, um, it's the same, the same situation we were talking about. It came west on American railways um, to Fort Benton, and then was brought up with carts across the prairies into the border. Or some steamships came up from Saint Paul in Minnesota, you know, trying to get into the territory that way because there was still no way for a Canadian government to even get uh, access to this ter- to these lands that they claimed for themselves. So. A great number of people uh, starved. There was a huge degree of hardship during that time. And, and uh, you know, that's ex- exactly the years that the railway was pressing through across the prairies. It was only just before that the treaties had been signed. And um, there's a very turbulent and chaotic time. Yeah. You'd go on forever to <laughs> talk yeah, about. Yeah, for sure. But... Well, one of the things there that, I mean, it sounds obvious, and I guess it is kind of obvious, but... Um, I hadn't thought of before reading this book and talking with you, um, you know, bison don't know about, you know, national borders. Like, like, yeah, they're on both sides, right? Like, like the bison are yeah. hanging out both, yeah. both prairie locations. So both uh, Canada and the United States have a, a similar um, history here um, regarding, um, you know, buffalo destruction, bison destruction. Um, they have similar economic needs. They they want, as you're talking about the industrial revolution, sort of increasing um, the need for these um, these bison and things like that. Um, it's just it's one of those one of those things where you're reminded sometimes of how arbitrary the borders become when the as you mentioned before, there's nothing there's there's no markers delineating the difference, and um, clearly the 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 bison don't care. The bison certainly don't care. They just they're just looking for good. Good grazing pasture. And yeah, I mean, the, no one, the border hasn't even been marked yet. Mm-hmm. And there was no reason for anyone to care about it. And from an American point of view, they're certainly not worried about this northern border. In fact, they probably imagine this northern border probably won't exist for too much longer. You know, that that's in their, in their minds, because why, why would it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, yeah, but the buffalo, yeah, they just go roaming all over and they... I, I'm just amazed at the speed that they went from essentially being a food source for anyone who wanted to would have unlimited food from these from these bisons within one generation they're completely gone to extinction. It's remarkable that but I guess he, there's that whole idea of the tipping point, right? You mm-hmm. it starts the population is declining, but not enough. Everyone keeps is able to keep seeing that there's a large number of bison still and time goes by and maybe there's a little bit less, but there's still an unlimited number of them. And then all of a sudden, within a couple of years, all of them seem to have disappeared. Yeah. And there was a small few pockets and then those were quickly rounded up and, and more or less gone. Well, some of the photographs too, they're just, they're, they're amazing. And in, in the, like the, you know, 
the sheer amount of I'm sure you've seen them like the skulls, the the piles and piles and piles. And it's just like the fact that one, there's so many obviously and they're they're deceased, but just like there were that many bison around and hanging, you know, this is just one photograph of it. it the the size I think yeah. is hard for us to fully grasp. It's it's hard to conceive of that many of those animals. I remember some early traveling accounts of uh, people going across the prairies in the U.S. Um, you know, decades before they were gone. But they would describe um, like camped out on a little rise, a hill, and have to wait for like days for the herd to go by. They couldn't move. There was just so there was millions of them. There was a, for some reason they were on the move. I don't know why. What would cause them to move um, the seasons or something or but I mean, they were camped there. They could not actually find their way through the herd. They just had to wait. They just had to sit there waiting while the, you know, the herd just sort of split around them on the hill and just was gone. Like for days, they had <laughs> the, yeah. the sheer number of them is just absolutely staggering. And of, and of course, that was the entire, uh, well, not the entire, but the let's say ninety percent of the food source of all of the Plains Indians, and the indigenous ones. It was also their source of. Um, uh, materials for all their clothing, materials for all the um, the different lodges that they made. So when the bison disappeared, a lot of these people were not, it wasn't that they just didn't have a food source. And it's a, yes, they didn't have a food source, um, but it also they didn't have a source of clothing and they didn't have a source of shelter and they didn't have a source of a whole bunch of other things too. And uh, um, so they completely, they went from being masters of everything to being absolutely having nothing and no economic role within their own territories, which is a pretty hard thing to have happen within one generation. Um, so speaking about some of the, we're talking about, um, you know, the industrial revolution and how it's impacted the environment. Um, something else you talk about in your book, uh, speaking of the construction process now, um, is a big technological change that the industrial revolution um, helps set off. Um, here and that's the invention of the dynamite, something that um, wasn't around for the Central Pacific to use for the building of the Transcontinental Railroad with the Sierra and, uh, Nevada Mountains, um, but something that proved to be a game changer for um, the Canadian Transcontinental Railroad. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, how the Canadian Transcontinental Railroad um, was able to use dynamite um, and sort of how that helped them um, when we're talking about those nearly impossible terrains? Yeah, I, I would uh, just uh, declare right off, without the invention of dynamite, there would be no Canadian Pacific Railroad. It would be impossible to build it. Even the the American ones, I mean, there was very hard for them to, when you read the accounts of how they were blasting through the Sierra Nevadas, the, the sheer quantities of gunpowder, like barrels and barrels of gunpowder stacked up against rock faces to try and blast it. I mean, then they went on to using nitroglycerin, which, of course, extremely volatile and dangerous, which was nitroglycerin was just a, the unstable uh, components of dynamite that was also invented by Alfred Nobel just, a, you know, a year, I think, or earlier than dynamite. Nitroglycerin was very volatile and it could explode and, and just blow people's arms off or, or cause all kinds of injuries and damage. It couldn't be transported. Um, but, yeah. The dynamite, I mean, it's at least 10 times as powerful as gunpowder, but because it was manufactured into small, stable sticks, you could drill into the rock, place the dynamite sticks into the rock, and blow the rock out from behind, which is something you could not do with um, 
old black powder, gunpowder. Um, so it's not just that it was more powerful, it's that it could be placed in better locations to cause um, more greater explosions. And um, that was a complete game changer. I mean, as soon as dynamite was invented, all the great industrial mega projects of the 19th century, all these massive rail tunnels, the St. Goddard rail tunnel, these gigantic things that are between Italy and Switzerland and, and northern parts of Europe that, that allowed commerce in Europe to, to really thrive too at that time. All of that came after dynamite. Dynamite completely revolutionized you know, the technological revolution allowed for a political and an economic revolution afterwards. All, all these sort of patterns of, of transportation where bulk goods could suddenly be transported at a reasonable expense along canals or, or rail beds could be. All of that happened because of dynamite, which opened up whole regions of the continent for agriculture, for mining, for, you know, the economy was completely transformed because these regions, if if it was inaccessible from before and wasn't already on and easily, uh, you know, if it wasn't on the Mississippi system or or some other barge, that barge network that was naturally flat, it would have been off limits for economic development. With with dynamite, all of a sudden the economy just took off and people could go everywhere, and we have a whole networks of roads, railways, canals, harbors, proliferating across the entire continent, and um, that's what also enabled. Uh, the blasting through all the granite and the other hard rock of the Canadian Shield for the tunnels and to level the ground for um, the CPR too. And to get its way through the Rocky Mountains, you know, you could um, blast mountainsides, level the terrain off. It was not possible for it. it would have taken, I, I mean, look, this Canadian railroad took two decades to, to build. I mean, it could have taken 100 years before, but there's no way anyone could have ever afforded to have done it. It would be impossible. Um, and who was it that was doing this work? What was the workforce um, makeup? I think, you know, the, the workforce on the CPR was probably similar in nature to the workforces on, you know, the U.S. railroads. A lot. I mean, the U.S. had a large, much larger population center to draw from. A lot of the workers on the Canadian one were recent immigrants from, from Europe. Um, probably a lot from from Britain and Ireland. Ireland, you know, the famous Irish were working on the railway. Um, in Canada, those were the same, the same people, like sort of impoverished, uh, not mostly illiterate, not highly skilled workers living in very poor conditions in labor camps. At they were often at the end of the rail. You know, they were supplied by the existing rail that was built behind them. So as they worked further across the terrain that they were building, um, uh, this is how the railway was able to build. As it as the rail progressed, access to sort of food supplies the, and um, clothing and more equipment, they created their own uh, logistical supply lines as they progressed across the continent. And But it would have been a miserable job i suspect living especially in a you know the canadian winters uh, in those areas north of lake superior would i mean that's that's harsh terrain i mean it, the winds and the freezing cold temperatures and they're trying to live in all these poorly constructed um log cabins without any real heating or sometimes just a canvas tents for a lot of the season imagine the flies and the black flies and the you know, of course, there's no refrigeration, there's no electricity, 
and there's no you know oil and gas so there's no real energy sources so everything has to be chopped from wood or they could burn some coal maybe um food couldn't be preserved so the diet that they ate was very poor heavy on salted everything salted a lot in order to survive um not a lot of fresh fruits and or vegetables or um like diseases such as well, the malnutrition type diseases, but uh, particularly like scurvy was quite common in the winter season, you know, with the um, people's gums would start to turn black and they would lose all the strength in their limbs and they'd be bleeding out of old wounds. I mean, some of these people survived just truly horrendous uh, conditions working on those. And Well, I'm curious too. So for the, the American Transcontinental Railroad, we're talking about like a six-year process. So if you started at the beginning, you know, theoretically you could make it to the end and that's a big segment of your, your career, your work time. Um, but when we're talking about the Canadian Transcontinental Railroad, you know, you talk about it's, it's a two decade process. Were, were there people that were around for that whole, you know, 20 years or so? I don't think anyone was, especially not the laborers. Some of the people involved in the politics and the financing might have been there from the beginning, but it it had its it had some rough periods too. I mean, there was the whole survey crews. I mean, this twenty year period involves from the earliest survey crews being sent out. Now they had a rough job too because this terrain is is all forested and there's no roads. And of course, ironically, there's no railroad, so there's no way to get to it. They had to walk or canoe through everything and try and survey where this route should go. So, I mean, those people had a rough uh, job too, but at least they were uh, free to go hiking, wander, wander around. They had a lot more latitude in their daily life, whereas a lot of the laborers are just there. The um, everything's done with manual power, sledgehammers and handsaws and and oxen teams to haul haul stuff. I mean, it's brutal, brutal hard work. And um, I I just got off track there. What what were we just? Oh, we're, we're talking point? about whether or not you could theoretically, but it sounds like. Like the conditions might just be so difficult that like you're realistically not spending 15 years as a laborer. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. And the and the Canadian Railway it started and then it stopped for a little bit. And there was a government took it over for a while when there was you know there's an election and the uh, John A's government lost and a new government came in and they wanted to run it as a government project and instead of a private enterprise project and under the government project you know, it was very inefficient and not much got done. And there was a lot of political corruption and land is sort of given off to, you know, for patron, <laughs> you know, it was, it, hardly anything got done during that four, four year period. And then it went, went it back, then it went back to being a private enterprise again and sort of restarted up. I, I seriously doubt any of the workers remained through the, through to the completion of it, but the last phase of it, there could have been, you know, let's just say the last, uh, the last several years, it was completed in 1885, but let's say, um, you know, the last four years or so, there could have been people who worked on it for that length of time, like the big push across, all the way across the prairies and through the Rocky Mountains and down those canyons of the Fraser River into British Columbia. There was also, um, uh, on the British Columbia part of the railroad, going along the Fraser River, at one time there was significant contingent of American workers who were brought up to do some of that work. However, um, the pay was not as good as what they could get um, in other areas and the conditions were harsher. And so almost all of them left, you know, it was not worth their while to be that the economy sort of picked up again in the, um, 
in the U.S. and they found greener pastures and they all fled and left British Columbia and moved back. Not but, all. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sure the sums did, but you know, as a as a group, they no longer formed part of the workforce, and there were severe labor shortages, which is why um, Chinese workers were eventually brought in, similar to, to the situation in the U.S. Um, labor brokers in China would uh, recruit people and sell their contracts on. They were brought in. The Canadian government passed the uh, legislation to allow them to be brought in by the railroads corporation, which um, you know dealt specifically with these labor brokers and brought them in. Um, it, the conditions in China at that time were, were absolutely horrible. I mean, China was going through great upheavals. There was disease, there was famines, there was floods, there was political um, disintegration. China was not a good place. There were millions of people fleeing China, and they, a lot of these Chinese workers ended up all over, all over the world building railroads. You know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States. I mean, um, Chinese workers were were fleeing their own country and coming and. They were being paid less money for more dangerous jobs, um, you know, because it was all negotiated with the labor brokers that signed them in, um, who just took a cut of their wages as once they were here. But that caused a lot of political contentions because by working for lower wages, they were undercutting the wages that the regular workers were getting paid. And there was, you know, some of the unions that were um, negotiating and trying to push for better conditions for the North American workforce, saw their desire for improved conditions being undercut by people who were working for, I think they were, they were getting like 20% less pay, but they were also, um, they were also responsible for providing their own food and medical conditions. And they didn't demand a lot of things like camp, proper cook camps and uh, proper shelters to live in. They were living under much rougher conditions and it was kind of left. So it was very cheap from the company's point of view to have these Chinese worker. And they were often assigned to, to do the most dangerous jobs like the dynamite blastings on cliffs were, um, you know, just one example of, of a labor practice that is no longer in force today. Um, in order to blast off the cliff, they would go to the top of the cliff, tie a person around the waist, give them a bunch of dynamite in their hand, lower them down a rope. They would stuff the dynamite into some cracks. They would light the dynamite because at that time, the fuse had to be lit. And they would yank on the rope and yell. And that was the time to pull them up really fast before before it explodes and blows the, the thing out. Or you go into the tunnel a long way and you place the dynamite deep into the tunnel. And then you just have to light it the longest fuse you could get and then run like hell before it explodes. And sometimes the roof would come down and crush a whole bunch of them that were in there. Mm -hmm. But con conditions were tr were truly awful. And uh, that was more so, it was bad for, for the regular workers, but it was especially bad for some of the Chinese ones who were given these most dangerous jobs for the lower pay. Yeah. And that tracks with a lot of the discrimination that we saw for um, on our side of the border with the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, same thing where they got paid a little bit less, about 20% less. Um, and then also had to provide for their own sort of living situations and, and things like that. Um, one thing I'm curious about, so you mentioned that primarily the Chinese workers um, for the Canadian Transcontinental Railroad were hired during that last portion, last like three or four years or so. Um, does that, that sounds like it lines up pretty well with the Exclusion Act of 1882 in the United States. Is there any um, like, oh, okay, well now 
these um, Chinese workforces can't get into the United States, Canada seems to be the next best option. Is that sort of what's happening there? Yeah, I I believe that that would be the case. And um, some Chinese who were in the United States mm -hmm. came north at that time. And like we were just mentioning, there was the, the border was really nothing. You just would walk across it. It wasn't really marked and no one was paying attention to it. So, you know, one of the one of the people I found when I'm, it was a really amazing discovery. The journal of a Chinese worker who worked on the CPR for many, many years um, was only recently discovered several years ago. And parts, parts of this journal, you know, detail his uh, life as he first crossed over to the United States and he worked uh, I believe it's in Washington state, but he didn't really know exactly where he was because none of them spoke any type of English. Um, most of the Chinese workers were completely illiterate. The look, they were um, the uneducated peasants. This fellow, although he was educated in China, his family had fallen in uh, to disfavor with the, with the imperial government and had lost all their status and their position. And so he was forced to flee. So he wrote his journal of first going to the United States and then coming up into Canada. I don't even know that he distinguished that he was in two different countries. He didn't mm -hmm. seem to mention it. And he described the, the cities by different names than what they were known for. But he detailed his life as a laborer for several years and is the only account of a Chinese rail worker that's ever been found. And it's, it's very recent. Anyway, it sheds a lot of light um, on the conditions that they uh, that they endured while they were working there, and that the different types of discrimination that they had, and um, the d diseases that were getting them, how harsh the conditions were, the the danger. Um, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Duke Sang Wong, the Diary of Duke Sang Wong. Um, I don't. I'm not sure in the U.S. how many accounts of chinese workers exist there that yeah, yeah we don't have any here either people... so that's this first i've heard of there being one for the canadian one that's that's a real that's that's awesome i, I um it's a it's new recent, discovery awesome. it's it's very new i mean i know no one can see this but i'm showing you the copy of it it's yeah it just came out it's a slim volume he only wow. it was discovered in the basement of their house or the attic of their old house and the you know the family didn't hardly know what it was really and someone translated like one of the great granddaughters of this fellow translated the account and uh and put it out there it's like only a year and two years old yeah well that's, so it's that's quite amazing great things right like the the knowledge base that we are working with continually grows and i'm i've always been hopeful that same type of thing that there's just some type of diary or some type of journal out there from um a chinese railroad worker that worked on the american transcontinental railroad that will just, you know, it'll pop up someday and, um, you know, yeah, search, it could be. I mean, maybe. this, this one, I mean, he was in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and he was in, in Canada, but he mostly worked for the CPR. His railroad work was CPR. Yeah, but I'll uh, definitely check it out. Yeah. I'm sure there's, yeah, as we've been mentioning, there's so many similarities here. Um, okay. So after the Transcontinental Railroad is completed, um, what happens to, I guess, and this could be a couple different answers depending on, um, um, if you're a Chinese railroad worker, um, or if you're one of the Irish workers or the indigenous workers, um, but essentially what happened to the to the workforce? Um, 
In the United States, we saw with the Chinese railroad workers, they um, often continued working for the rail railroad companies, maybe try signed on to different companies, um, moved into agriculture, things like that. Um, was that a similar dynamic here? I yeah, I I believe that's sort of uh, the same idea. I mean, the once the railroad was completed, of course, there was there's always ongoing demands for you know the maintenance of it, and in the the case of the CPR. The quality of track that was originally built was often very poor. They just needed to get the thing done so they could get some kind of functioning rail line working. Um, like the the company itself was basically bankrupt and had leveraged so many loans that were backed by the government of Canada. The entire country could have just gone flop. They hadn't just got something working. But what they had working was of such low quality that it needed to be constantly remained constantly maintained and whole sections of track rebuilt afterwards in the coming years. So a lot of the Chinese workers continued to work on that along with, uh, along with other ones too, like other uh, workforce from, you know, from the Irish and other European um, areas. But a lot of the, there wasn't enough demand on the railway alone for all of the Chinese workers. Cause at one time there's many thousands of them just on the Canadian section in British Columbia um, a lot of them were just turned off, like they were just turned out into the world. Oh, go fend for yourself, which is very hard to do because, you know, owing to a whole bunch of different reasons, they had not culturally integrated at all. Many of them didn't speak any English. Um, they remained a distinct force that was not viewed favorably by that time in the 1880s. Um, you know, a lot of discrimination against them. And some turned, I think... There was a comment in British Columbia that basically all the small um, the small grocers and the small gardeners across the entire province were basically Chinese at that time. Mm. So a lot of them turned to small-scale agriculture. And um, they were pre uh, prevented from working on any government contracts. Like there was laws saying no Chinese worker will, will be able to work in the mines. No Chinese worker will be able to work on this road project you know they were excluded for large from large sections of the economy but i guess uh you know uh yeah no and that's that's the the thing about this story that always gets to me is it's just how similar these two things are i mean it makes some sense that they're large railroads they're you know we're neighbors you know a lot of the workforce overlapped and um it's not that many years um separating it either but considering as we've mentioned like so much of the story of these railroads have come to be symbols um, for their respective nation. It's interesting that like, yeah, I mean, there's another one that happened that has almost the same story that's supposed to be symbol symbolic of another country, you know, like it's, it doesn't feel all that unique, even if it, you know, it's, it's still only two, but you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I guess like the terrain is not that different. Mm -hmm. um, the technology is not that different. Um, the workforces ha at that time had to have come from similar places because, um, well, the U.S. and Canada really weren't all that different back then. And the people just went back and forth over the border. Like I have ancestors who, who, um, came, you know, they were in Nova Scotia for a while and then they decided they were just going to move to Boston. <laughs> so they just, just sailed their boat there. And then all of a sudden they're in Boston now. No one cared. There was no document for anything. I mean, these people just went where they felt like it. and. Yeah, so it's not surprising that they'd be quite similar. Uh, the same, the same technology, steam and dynamite, and hard work with manual manual labor and, and animals for the 
Yeah. Well, for the horsepower. <laughs> and uh, yeah, same food, the same. Yeah, it's, in fact, it's pretty much exactly the same. We're just like a, a few years later in time. Yeah. Decade later in time, I guess. Um, okay, so looking at sort of the, the big picture here for Canada, um, we talked about the political need, the um, the desire of McDonald to make sure that this is a Canada-only route. Eventually, all this is successful. They almost go bankrupt, but they manage to, to figure it out um, right before that sort of consequence kicks in. Um, did the Canadian Transcontinental uh, Railroad eventually you know, realize all those hopes and dreams that the investors, as well as that political class, um, see, seek for it. I think it was, it took way longer than anyone imagined that it was going to take, obviously, and cost way more than ever, anyone ever could have conceived that it would, uh, you know, nearly bankrupting the, the country, which kept financing it. Cause it became too big to fail essentially. Right. Like if it did, everything was going to co collapse. Um, but it did pay off really big time for the people who, who stuck with it and had a lot of the shares. And the company itself that owned all this land around the, the rail centers, you know, especially when minerals were discovered north of Lake Superior and all that rock land. Oh, all, all of a sudden that land, which they had written off as being valueless, all of a sudden it became extremely valuable. Oh, we can have mining towns now and we're shipping the ore back and forth. Okay, an unexpected you know, part of the business plan that is uh, all to the upside for them. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the population that started flooding in the 1890s into Western Canada, I mean, that's when Western Canada started to see its population increase by significant numbers. And of course, all of that tied into the economic hinterland of the St. Lawrence original candidates along the St. Lawrence system. And um, it did create a, a huge eco economic boom for a lot of the industry that existed there. Um, the original investors in the CPR, um, well, they, a lot of them became some of the wealthiest people. I mean, they made so much money from that because um, the government grants that had been given for you know the free land uh, went up in value more than anyone thought that it ever was going to. And then there was, um, you know, a fellow named uh, uh, Van Horn, Linus Van Horn. He was originally from the area around Chicago. Um, he ended up being the, in charge of the CPR. In fact, a lot of the people who were in charge of the CPR, this is, I, I always wanted to mention this, that just to make a diversion, um, a lot of the people in charge of the CPR, the great irony is that this is viewed as Canada's grand nation-making industrial mega project uh, without which the country wouldn't exist and blah, blah, blah. You know, everyone talks about it and mythologizes it. Um, it's so closely tied to Canada. The great irony is a lot of the people in the upper echelons of the management and the planning and even the surveying were, were actually Americans. Um, whether you have... Um, you know, Major A.B. Rogers, the, the great surveyor who found the passes through the Rocky Mountains, Rogers Pass through um, British in British Columbia, you know, the biggest, most dangerous pass that it went through. I mean, he was he was in a U.S. fellow and he went back there afterwards. Um, Andrew Onderdonk, who was the great engineer that pioneered the way of getting all the um, 
the railway built through the free, the canyons of the Fraser River system. Um, he was originally from New York, and he went back to California after. Um, and uh, well, Cornelius Van Horn, uh, he ended up staying in Montreal and becoming one of the wealthiest, uh, you know, people in the country, living in giant mansions in the richest area. But I mean, he was originally from Chicago area, and uh, and all of his senior managers and engineers, he preferred to bring in people that he knew from his time working on U.S. railroads. So anyway, it's a bit of an irony there, and I always thought that it was kind of funny that it's so t nationalistically tied, and yet the even the upper echelons of it were not uh, had nothing to do with Canada at the time. And um, but it was Cornelius Van Horn who also pioneered the whole. Canadian National Park System. So one of his other ways of generating traffic on the railroad was to eat out in these very scenic areas in the Rocky Mountains and other mountain ranges between, you know, Calgary and Vancouver, was to build a bunch of these chateaus or, or really nice areas to stay and market it to, you know, very well-off Europeans and Eastern Americans to come and take the great scenic tour of the world's greatest places, you know, Chateau Lake Louise. and um, mm -hmm. But a lot of these places generated additional high-end traffic on the railway because it was all ultra luxury like fine dining the whole way stay in these great chateaus and and then the canadian national park system was all built around that too banff national park was originally built as a reason for the railway to offer a stop for tourism mm -hmm. and um so that also generated uh, a lot of traffic on the railway and then of course once you came to uh vancouver it was a port system. And, um, you know, at the time, the British Empire was at, you know, one of its most powerful uh, world-girdling size of it at the time. So it was a link in the British Empire um, to create an economic system which wasn't entirely dominated by the United States, which was, you know, as we know, a huge economic powerhouse and was on its way to, you know, to ascendancy in the 20th century and dominating the economy and the economic transfer routes around the whole the whole world, but the British system at that time was also very powerful. And this rail line was a way that you could connect, like Hong Kong, to you know to get to Vancouver. Then goods could come on ships and then go on railways and end up in Montreal. And from Montreal, they could go on the St. Lawrence and end up all the way in in England, right? So it was a a new chain in the world girdling link of the British Empire at the time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's 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 funny you mentioned the National Park thing. That's a very similar story, of course, in the United States. The park system sort of follows the railroads and that like America first. Um, that was the, the slogan to get people to try to um, vacation in America before going to Europe. So that's why it's called America first. Um, and yeah, same same thing. But it's just this interesting connection between we talked about the environmental problems with the railroad and sort of um, increased settlement creating those problems for the bison and all these other issues um the sort of catch-22 is like okay but it's also creating national parks so there's always that kind of um, both sides of it um but we talked a lot about canada uh the canadian transcontinental railroad how it's memorialized as that like uh, symbol for the canadian nation things like that um what do you think, we talked about sort of the, the problems with that. Um, have you thought at all about what the legacy should be? Yeah, I mean, I'm one of these people that likes to see both sides of issues and it perfectly open to seeing um, or just appreciating that 
um, something can be very complex, like it can be morally complex, economically complex, politically complex. There's no, I don't subscribe to the old rah, rah, isn't this great? There's no downside, but I don't want to crap on it either. I mean, it's amazing, an amazing engineering and technical triumph that it, and uh, and a financial and a political triumph that something like that could be conceived of designed and built at that time using that technology and all the people who poured their lives into it it's yeah. complex and it that's what makes it interesting is that it's not so simple simplistic i guess is the it's avoid simplicity yeah no i think it's more interesting if it's more complex that's a good way to think about it and i think your book does a great job at um sort of hitting on those things it certainly doesn't um it certainly doesn't leave out any of the the bad sides of of um, the stuff that happened um but it, it also talks about it as a technological achievement and as something that um you know in large in large respects made canada what it is today so um i think it's an awesome book that people should check out um i found it on amazon is there a recommended place of purchasing it or is it just wherever you you get your books. It's all good. Yeah. Any place that sells books, Amazon's all perfectly fine too. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, again, for listeners, that is Dominion, the rise or the railway and the rise of Canada. Um, we'll have a link to that in the description. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was a lot of fun to, um, again, see those comparisons between the American transcontinental railroad and the Canadian transcontinental railroad. Yeah. Thanks. It was my pleasure. It was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review, like, and subscribe so you'll get more information about when our next episode drops. And in the next couple episodes, we're going to be diving further into the Canadian railroad system, talking about the consequences of the transcontinental railroad in Canada, as well as its lasting impact on Canada and the Canadian transportation systems. Thank you again for listening, and have a great week.